Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. Bible reading is from the prophecy of Isaiah, um, page 573. If you're using one of the church Bibles, uh, you'll find one beside you in front of you or on the window ledge, and in the large print version, page 680. And this is the second uh, sermon in a series of five uh, on Isaiah 9, 1 through 7, uh, I emphasized out of deference uh, to all kinds of people that last Sunday's sermon was not an Advent sermon, it was a pre-Advent sermon, but since we're now in Advent, uh, the four sermons that follow are Advent sermons, and they're all going to be focusing on Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. But today, I think it would be really helpful for us if we read in from halfway through Isaiah chapter 8. So, let's begin to read at Isaiah 8 verse 11. Isaiah says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Obviously, rumors are flying about political conspiracy. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor, is holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in Him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God 
and turn their faces upward, and they shall look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And remember, we saw last time that Matthew cites these words in reference to the coming of the Lord Jesus and His ministry. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Last time we noticed that Isaiah was a prophet and that one of the names or titles or descriptions of prophets in the Old Testament is the word seer, S-E-E-R. And they're called seers because they look at exactly the same thing at which other people look but they see much more deeply. They penetrate into the significance of events. Isaiah is living in a time of great political turmoil, obviously social disorder, religious carelessness, and people judging by these references to conspiracies are looking for political and social solutions but Isaiah is a seer, and he penetrates further. As we often say as Christians, he sees that the heart of the matter is not to be understood, as it were, merely horizontally, because the heart of the matter with Israel's needs and with the need of the people in every generation is a matter of the heart. And so the solution to the heart problem cannot be found by political or merely social means. It needs to be found by spiritual means. The need for someone to rescue us, someone to deliver us, someone who 
will answer the cries of people in many generations as there nobody who can really solve our problems is that God will send a divine problem solver, a divine deliverer, a divine king, who, as Isaiah says here in our text verse, will be a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting Father, and a Prince of Peace. Uh, last week, rashly, uh, off the top of my head, I referred to two famous groups of songwriters, uh, Simon and Garfunkel and the Beatles. And so, let me move this Sunday a little more upmarket, just in case Drew's sensibilities were hurt last week by these references and the fact that I said I didn't know any Ed Sheeran songs, but most of us can hardly read these words in Isaiah 9 verse 6 without in the background hearing a choir singing these very words in Handel's Messiah. And if you can hear those words sung in Handel's Messiah, you probably notice the difference between Handel's text and our text. There is an extra comma in Handel's text. Wonderful. I won't sing it out of deference to everyone. Wonderful. Counselor. Mighty God. Everlasting Father. Prince of Peace. And Handel's librettist uh, uh, was following the text of the authorized version, which reads in that way. Five names, wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, I think the English Standard Version is right, and right for a fairly obvious reason that these last three names are all double-barreled names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and that creates a kind of presupposition that the first name is going to be a double-barreled name as well, Wonderful Counselor. But the authorized version in Handel did get one thing right, and that interestingly is that the word wonderful here is, I'm sure you're all waiting to know, is a noun. It's not an adjective. So you can see why the old translators translated it wonderful counselor. Given the fact that all of these names are double-barreled names, I think probably what Isaiah is saying here is that the counselor is the wonderful one. He is the wonderful one who is the counselor. And the significance of that is that dominantly in the, the, in the Old Testament, the word wonderful, um, I think at least 80% of the times it's used, is used in reference to God and not man. It is God who is wonderful. And what Isaiah sees here is that the resolution of the problems of the heart are going to be found in the wonderful one giving counsel to his people. And there's actually a very interesting, if kind of subtle, connection to what Isaiah had said earlier, that the deliverance would be like the deliverance in the day of Midian. 
And if you remember the story of Gideon, Gideon is met by the angel of the Lord. And a few chapters later on, the parents of Samson are also met by the angel of the Lord. And they, they are bold enough, bolder than Gideon, to say, tell us what your name is. And the angel of the Lord tells them, why are you asking my name? My name is wonderful. And so against this background of the people's need for a master, a judge who will deliver them from their spiritual bondage, Isaiah is saying, as it were, well, his first title is, the wonderful one will be your counselor. And why do they need a counselor? Why do they need somebody to guide them and direct them? Well, because the whole atmosphere of these verses, and it's even more so when we read in from chapter 8, is an atmosphere of gloom and darkness, of deep darkness. Isaiah uses the language David uses in the 23rd Psalm that traditionally we translate as walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And it's translated that way traditionally because Death is the deepest darkness, but what he says is, walk through the valley of deepest darkness. But as we saw last time, in real darkness, in real gloom, and the Word appears again and again in these verses, you cannot see where you are. You cannot see where you are going. And unless someone speaks, you do not know if anyone is there to accompany you. And what is even more significant in the language of the Bible is that the, the, the ultimate background to this kind of darkness is the darkness that preceded the beginnings of the shapelessness of the original mass of creation being given form and its emptiness being filled. And so, in Genesis 1, there's a very similar repetition to the repetition of the idea of darkness that we have here. And to Isaiah's hearers and first readers familiar with this Scripture, this language would thrust them back. It would be as though he were saying, the world in which we live is undergoing a process of decreation from the way in which God intentionally meant it to be. When into the darkness He spoke again and again and said, let there be light. Now in our helplessness, Isaiah is saying there is going to be light once again when the wonderful Counselor comes. So, what our forefathers would have said if they'd been preaching at this point would be, so the doctrine of this text, the teaching of this text, the message of this text for us is that God's people are given wonderful counselor. If you're one of God's people, He has given you a wonderful counselor. And I want us to think about that in two ways. 
First of all, how it is that He gives us counsel when we're in the darkness. And then, secondly, why it is that we can trust Him absolutely when we're in the darkness. So, let's think about that first issue. How does He give us counsel in the darkness? Now, Isaiah is very familiar with this. He's familiar with this not only in terms of the situation in which he lives, the situation that he foresees at the time of the coming of Jesus, the way in which he sees into the real sickness of society and human existence. He's also very familiar with the fact that the the children of God sometimes walk in darkness. And he refers to this later on in chapter 50. At the end of chapter 50, he gives directions to those who are actually children of light but are walking in darkness. So, the assumption here, if I put it this way, is if you are a child of light, if you really belong to the Lord, if you're one of His people, if you're a Christian believer, it is still true that you may walk in darkness. And at least for Isaiah, someone who knew and would sing the Psalms, pray the Psalms, memorize the Psalms, he knew that the experiences of various psalmists were experiences of walking in darkness. He knew that David had not written the 23rd Psalm when he was 13 years old, but when he had walked through the valley of deep darkness. He knew that that Asaph, when he wrote Psalm 73, had been profoundly troubled trying to make sense of his times and his own life where the promises of God seem to be topsy-turvy and the realities of life seem to contradict them. And uh, a few psalms later on in what is an amazing statement that so inspired uh, William Cooper to write his hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, when he says, you know, sometimes when God walks into our lives and walks through our lives, He plants His footsteps in the sea. And the thing about footsteps in the sea, S-E-A, is that footsteps in the sea are invisible. Or if they were momentarily visible, they disappear almost instantaneously, and the believer who is watching the sea is wondering where God is, where He has gone. So, what do we need when we're in the darkness? And we will at times be in the darkness in what many of us regard as the supreme chapter in Paul's letters, Romans chapter 8. He says there are some times when believers are so in the darkness that they don't know what to pray for or how to pray as they ought. Now, we pray because of our need, because we can't deal with the issue. That's why we pray. But to be in such darkness that we're not able to understand what the issue really is or what the solution might be, then that for ordinary believers like ourselves is to feel that we are walking through the valley of deep darkness. And in that deep darkness, what we obviously need from the wonderful Counselor is not 
This is how you can change the situation. Much human counsel will enable us or attempt to enable us to change the situation. But the Scriptures see my ultimate issue is not my situation. So, when God's light shines into the darkness of our lives, it doesn't necessarily change the situation, which is, of course, what we instinctively want. Change the situation. No, what God's light does is to shed light on the situation so that we have, we have a taste of what Isaiah had. We, we're able to see the situation through different lenses, and because we see the situation, because light has shone upon the situation, the great thing is we're able to glorify God even when we are in the darkness. And that's the great thing. How can I glorify God when I'm in the darkness? And the reason the wonderful counselor is able to give us counsel is, as you remember, that great 139th Psalm says, uh, because He knew us when we were in the womb, when we were knit together in the darkness of our mother's womb, He knew us, because, as the psalm goes on to say, to the wonderful counselor, listen to this, the darkness and the light are the same the darkness and the light are the same. And so, when we come to Him, we're able to say, as the psalmist also says, isn't this interesting that we get both the darkness and the light running through the psalms? We're able to say, Lord, in Your light, I begin to see light. So, the question is, how does He give us that light? And again, uh, Isaiah rests, as we see in chapter 8, on the psalmist to give us his answer. Uh, remember the melancholy cry of the psalmist in Psalms 42 and 43, why are you cast down, my soul? Why are you disquieted within me? What is going to be his salvation? Well, he understands it. And so he prays, those of you who were brought up in the Psalms, uh, know this as one of the great Scottish Psalm anthems. Oh, send your light forth and your truth. Let them be guides to me. You see what his understanding is? Isaiah has the same understanding. Bind up the testimony. Seal the testimony. If it's not according to the Word, then let us not follow it. That will lead to darkness, not to light. But if He sends forth His light through His truth, then in the midst of the darkness, uh, we will know where we are. We will know, as David hinted earlier on, where we are looking and because He speaks through His Word, we will know that there is someone there, someone there. And that's how God works through His Word, isn't it? Um, 
It's a wonderful passage in a letter written by John Newton, who had counseled many bewildered Christians, including William Wilberforce, of course, who were struggling to find their way in the darkness. How do we get the light? And Newton writes, well, we get the light because our minds, our spirits are being saturated in the truth of Scripture, like lens crafters crafting lenses into the very way in which we see the world, the, the way in which we react to it, the intuitions that are given to us. Um, as you, you know, Spurgeon said about, about um, John Bunyan that if you pricked him anywhere, he would bleed bibline. And, and that's what Isaiah, that's why he emphasizes to the word and to the testimony. Uh, because um, Drew will forgive me for referring to him again, because when the text, when the score is embedded into you, then it flows out of you as though it were part of you, instinctive to you. So you don't have to go around carrying, well, you don't anyway, because it's on your mobile phone, your, your big strong's concordance to look up, is there a verse of Scripture that will help me here? But because the Word of God has impressed itself upon us. Um, and it happens in different ways. It happens when we're reading the Scriptures. It may have happened to you, and, and those who are ministers find this sometimes happens to their delight that someone is, is pouring out this situation, their darkness to them, and, and sometimes it's just a bow uh, used at a venture, but the Word is brought to bear upon them, and they, they leave you bathed in light. It is one of the most wonderful things in all the world about pastoral ministry, for people to come confused and in difficulties and for light to be shone on their situation doesn't change their situation. That's what we instinctively but superficially long for, change my situation. But it's not miracles changing our situation, but light that helps us to see where we are in the situation, who God is in the situation. Remember how Asaph saw that? Then he says, I went into the temple of God and I saw it. And light dawned. I remember at the funeral service of one of my colleague's daughters, her minister saying how she had said to him in her dying days, as she left church huddled in blankets to keep warm, this young woman, she said to him just these words in passing as she left, I see now it's not really about me. I see now it's not really about me. That's light, isn't it? That's light when what we're saying to God is, God, why is this happening to me? Explain this to me. It's about me. But it transforms everything when you understand that it's not just about me. It's about Him. It's about what He means to do through me and the lives of others. That changes everything. That's light. 
And then it comes sometimes, doesn't it, thank God, through the preaching of the Word, when nobody else knows it's happening. This is my experience as a, as a hearer of God's Word, the breaking in of light as the Spirit takes the Word and begins to work it into where we are personally, and, and we can be sitting there listening, and no one, not even our nearest and dearest sitting next to us, realizes that God's Word has brought light because the wonderful Counselor has spoken through His Word, and He's given us understanding, and not because of the eloquence of the preacher, often curiously not because of the accuracy of His exposition, but because the truth of the Scripture in the hands of the Spirit has got inside so the wonderful counselor counsels us, and we get light. What about the second question? How can we be so sure that we can trust His counsel when we're in the darkness? And the answer to that question is because the wonder, the one who is wonderful, the one whose name is wonderful, that one who counsels us is the child born, the son given, the Emmanuel of 714, who is the prince who is described here in 9.6, is God with us, wonderful one with us, a child born. The Son who is given to counsel us is born as a child, which means He can say, Psalm 139, when I was in the womb of my mother Mary and being woven together, you saw me in the darkness, and you've been with me all the way through my life, my ministry. The reason we can trust Him is because unlike in many ways, the other religions that flow from the Abrahamic tradition see God, largely speaking, as remote, so remote in some cases that His name will not be pronounced. The name He gave to Moses will not be pronounced it is presented here in the Old Testament Scriptures as the one who has come near to us. He is the one you remember, actually, interestingly, just before Isaiah speaks about the child of light walking in the darkness, he speaks about the child who is going to be born. And uh, he says, he puts into the, the mouth, as it were, of the coming Lord Jesus these words to His heavenly Father, morning by morning you waken me. You waken and open my ear and I listen as one who is taught, and therefore I'm able to give instruction and guidance that is utterly trustworthy, that is near. Um, you, 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 you may go to a Christian counselor, and you may become what they call a client, or you may go to a psychiatrist and become a patient. But when you go to the wonderful counselor, when you go to Jesus, you become neither client nor patient. What you become is brother 
And it's so interesting. This is why we read from Isaiah chapter 8. The author of Hebrews picks up those words in Isaiah chapter 8, where Isaiah says about the faithful, the remnant, here am I, Father, and the children you have given me. And in Hebrews chapter 2, the author of Hebrews picks these words up, and he puts them right into the mouth of the Lord Jesus. And he is Jesus fulfilling those words. And Jesus saying to His Father, in the context of Him sharing our human nature, sharing our weakness, sharing our temptations, right in the midst of us, He says, Father, here I am, trusting in You, depending on You, knowing that You will shine light into the deepest darkness I will experience. And here are the children you've given to me. That's why you can trust him absolutely. Because however different your circumstances from his, your circumstances have never been, are not, and never will be as dark and as oppressive as his circumstances were. And so it's not only that He is able to counsel you, but that as the one who does counsel you through His Word, by His Spirit, as you read it, as you hear it, as you speak it, as we speak it to one another, as we listen to it being expounded, as it reverberates in our memories, uh, the wonderful thing is the identity of the one who is speaking to us. Remember how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2 um, to Christians in Ephesus, which Jesus never visited. Okay? He says, having made peace through the blood of the cross, He, Jesus, came and preached peace to you. The question is, so when did Jesus visit Ephesus and preach peace? Answer, when Paul visited Ephesus and preached Christ. That's what we experience, isn't it? That's the, that's the wonder, the, the mystery, the, the romance, the adventure of these counseling sessions that we have. You could go in places in the world where you'd be paying hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of dollars for 40 minutes with the great counselor. And apart from your generous contributions to the church building fund, it's free, isn't it? It, it? it is free. And it's for all. And it's from Him because He is Emmanuel, God with us. And you know, when these Tissues are taken off. That's what this table says to us, isn't it? Remember the words of Revelation 3.20 to the church. It's, uh, it's, almost like, it's almost like they were about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, and they hear Jesus saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door. I will come into him 
and sup with him, and he with me. So that right here, right now, the wonderful Counselor, by his Spirit, comes among us, and he says to us at this table, here am I, Father, and here are the children you've given me. And whatever darkness, friends, family, which is what we are, whatever darkness we may be in, to know that He is with us, and that He is Emmanuel, and that He is the wonderful Counselor, and that He says about us, Father, here I am, and the children you have given me. Well, that's light in our darkness, and it will lead us through the valley of deep darkness, and knowing that He is with us, and has promised never ever to leave us, that He is the same today, now, as He was in the days described in the Gospels. That's to have Him is to have light. To have Him is to hear Him saying, I am the light. He or she who follows me will never walk in total darkness because there will always be light.